0: everyone and welcome to episode 547 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo. I'm CEO of the Australian Writer Centre, the world's leading centre for writing courses, and I'm your host. What have you been up to this week? I have been, believe it or not, writing in cafes with my cat Rocky. It's our new thing. Uh, we found an activity and we both absolutely love it um there's cafes but sometimes I take I get a takeaway uh coffee and I go to the park with Rocky on a picnic bench with my iPad or my laptop and I do my writing there I'm very productive there um in the cafe and in the park and Rocky is very productive watching the world go by We do sit in the outdoor section of the cafes, but there's generally an outdoor heater there and I wear my fleece jacket so we're toasty, warm, even in winter. And honestly, I seem to get an incredible amount of writing done. And if you're interested, you can follow our adventures just for fun on Instagram at Productive Rocky, because he makes me so productive. Anyway, you may have heard me mention before the fact that you can borrow ebooks and audiobooks from your local library on your phone or tablet. And if you haven't done that yet, I highly recommend visiting the website of your local library and, um, or, or going there and asking them to show you how it's done. Uh, but another thing I discovered that my local library has is access to documentaries and films. Again, completely for free. So my library has a subscription to a service called Canopy, with a K, K K-A-N-O-P-Y, Canopy, which has tons of international films and documentaries, as well as some independent movies that you won't find on the major streaming services. There are even a whole series from The Great Courses, so you can dive into, you know, like a 24-episode series on churches or 48 lectures on the European Renaissance or whatever, or algebra or architecture or dozens of other subjects, particularly if you're researching something for for your writing or your novel. They also have old classics like Charlie Chaplin movies or the 1927 film... Metropolis by Fritz Lang and the Japanese director Akira Kurosawa's film Rashomon. Now, of course, this is not procrastination, it's research, right? And you can stream it on your phone or your computer or your smart TV, of course. If you haven't checked out all the e-resources and online resources that your library has to offer, make sure you do. But of course, you could get lost down that rabbit hole. You'll just need to exercise some discipline. Now let's move on to our competition this week. Have you ever wondered whether your b and hosts or your Airbnb hosts snoop through your belongings? This week's giveaway gives us an insight into the mind of an obsessive b and host, bed and breakfast host, who likes to get to know her guests a little too well. I have three copies of The Guest Room by Tasha Silver to give away. So here's the blurb. Careful what you look for. Careful what you find. After the mysterious death of her beloved sister, Tess is grief-stricken and lonely. She's forced to B&B Rosie's old room to pay the bills. With strangers in her home, Tess discovers a distraction, their possessions. Tempted into the room while they're out, she goes through her guests' things, imagining the stories they hold. These forbidden glimpses into their lives and the chance of being caught are a momentary thrill, the only thing she can feel through the numbing pain of her loss and the so far fruitless police investigation. When handsome and inscrutable Aaron takes the room, Tess finds his diary, the entries are about an unnamed woman, crush or obsession. Slowly, his writing takes a darker tone and Tess can't stop reading. In her compulsion to know, to uncover the truth, there's something Tess fails to notice. She's being watched. Everyone has their secrets. This one is closer to home. There you go. Well, I have three copies of The Guest Room by Tasha Silver to give away. Just go to Writer Center. Dot com dot au slash win and entries close on the 10th of July and just follow the instructions there it's very easy to enter that's writerscenter.com.au slash win and of course if you're at that URL sometime in the future don't worry there'll be some other fantastic competition for you to enter and now are you ready for the word of the week Well, I hope you are, because the word of the week this week is retiform. That's R-E-T-I-F-O-R-M, retiform. What does it mean? It's an adjective meaning net-like or having crisscrossed lines. So I guess you could say the city was divided into sections by the retiform tramway system. There you go. Try and use that in a sentence this week. Retiform. And that was the word of the week. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our popular course, Crime and Thriller Writing, is the perfect course if you want to write a gripping page-turner. You'll learn about the different types of crime and thriller fiction, ingredients every good story needs, how to manage characters, pace, suspense, and climax, publishing options, and much more all in this five-week course with Zoom sessions with the wonderful crime and thriller writer L.A. Larkin, who will give you personal feedback on your writing every week. Find out more at writercentercomau slash crime. That's writercenter.com.au slash crime. Now let's move on to this week's Writer in Residence. Today, I'm talking to Tim Aliff, who has been a journalist for more than 20 years and is the managing editor of television and video for ABC News and the former executive producer of News Breakfast. He's traveled very widely, uh, but before joining the ABC, he worked in London for British Sky News. A few years ago, he started writing global crime thrillers featuring former foreign correspondent, John Bailey. He's the author of The Greater Good, State of Fear, The Enemy Within, and his latest novel is Killer Traitor Spy. Thank you so much for joining us today, Tim.
1: It's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: I'm so excited about this. I devoured this book. Um, for people who haven't got their hands on a copy yet, and everyone should go go buy one. Um, can you tell us what it's about?
1: So this picks up the fourth book in the John Bailey series, um, and everything in my books uh, either has happened, will happen, or could happen, which is the sort of rule in which I write by. Um, Bailey's got a really interesting backstory, and um, He's a former war correspondent who carries a lot of trauma after being kidnapped and tortured um, in Iraq. Um, so this book um, picks up where he's um he there's been a um a poisoning of um a woman in Sydney, a mysterious sort of poisoning, and he has a connection um to this woman um, who's actually in The Greater Good. Um this is the first time we see her again since the first book. And um So he, uh, you know, hears about this, he gets questioned by police because he was the person that dropped her off to the hotel where she ended up being poisoned. And um, so he starts finding out, trying to find out exactly what happened to her, and it leads him into um, understanding that, well, discovering that there was a a Russian businessman that she'd been spending the night with in this hotel. And then he stumbles across, uh, well, he um, then... um, discovers that his old friend, a CIA officer called Ronnie Johnson, um, is actually looking into the same thing and that this poisoning links all the way into the corridors of power in Canberra where um, there are you know, concerns that um, the Russians have somehow infiltrated our intelligence agencies.
0: Now, I want to emphasise to people that the, even though this is the fourth book in the John Bailey series, it is a standalone novel. You can read this novel without having read the first thread, but I guarantee you that if you do, if this is the first John Bailey novel you read, you're going to want to read the rest. Um, so where did this idea come from, the premise for this particular novel?
1: Well, look, I was really interested in what Russia has been doing abroad in terms of whether it's you know, attempting to d- disrupt elections in the United States or um, some of their other covert, you know, actions whereby you've heard, I, I talk about, I write about Havana syndrome in this book where um, it's a really mysterious attack um, that has been happening mostly against um, US uh, CIA officers or State Department officials in uh, embassies abroad where, um, it's thought that these mysterious microwave weapons have been used um, in these attacks and I'd read about this and I thought wow you know this is something of, of lacare spine thrillers um and but you know in, in that I guess definitely as a nod to lacare with these books including in the title um but what what is old is new again I mean the old cold War fractures are, are, are well back in in our lives and I started writing this book over two years ago so it was about a year before the Ukraine conflict started. Um, but um, Putin had been making a lot of noise, um, sometimes subtly, sometimes not so. Um, we'd seen his, you know, military action, you know, in Ukraine, you know, previously in Crimea. Um, but um, he, he wrote this, he gave this speech um, in, I think it was 2021, where he talked about, how effectively Ukraine was a part of Russia. Um, He'd made his intentions really clear with that. And in reading that speech, I was really intrigued um, about what comes next. So not knowing that there would be a full-blown war in Ukraine, and it's obviously incredibly sad what's happening there, um, I was really interested in um, the what-ifs around um, what Putin was up to, but also the number of oligarchs that have been moving their money out of Russia um, for many, many years now. Um, if you look at, I was really interested in the fall of the Soviet Union and what happened next, um, how Putin gradually, his story itself is fascinating in the way he rose through the ranks and then just popped up suddenly as, you know, the heir apparent to be the, the president after um, after Yeltsin. Um, which was just in- incredible, considering that he was a you know KF, KGB or F- FSB officer before that, um, and his experience in government was not really really extensive as as you would think. Um, so that that's something that really interested me as well. The Magnitsky Act,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, you know, Bill Browder has written some really good books um, on this, um, but Sergei Magnitsky was his lawyer um, who um, was was um, locked up by. Um, the uh, by you know Putin's you know forces in in uh, Moscow and he ended up dying in prison, which is incredibly sad. And um, Bill Browder, you know, made it his mission to actually try to take on some of those closest to to Putin through Magnitsky legislation, which he got passed in the US and now is passed in governments all around the world. So so all of those things together, I um, then. And the kind of person that reads and looks at really closely the speeches, you know, given by intelligence you know, officers and and our, Australia's chief spy, um, Mike Burgess, gives his annual threat assessment. And he'd been talking up the threat of Russia, of Russian spies and espionage. Um, he'd been talking up the threat of espionage quite a lot in the last few years. A lot of that's around China and China's behaviour, particularly we've seen, and it's been written about, um, with Chinese operatives on university campuses and things like that. But um, it's sort of low scale, sort of just trying to bring more support for um, for um, China under Xi. Um, but um, the last two years, um, the rhetoric had really ramped up and, and he said something last year like um, there are more foreign um, operatives um in operating in Australia than at any time since the height of the Cold War. And then this year, um, after obviously I've well finished the book, but he'd said that um, that he'd, he'd called, you know, the threat of in, intelligence operative, operatives here is not not a thing of the past, um, that they are a real and present danger, and I put that quote in the front of the book.
0: Mm -mm -mm. so the thing is that the book is set against this backdrop of world of world events that are very very real and very very present right now um uh, but it's essentially also a very human story because and central to that is John Bailey take us back to four books ago when you were thinking about John Bailey
1: Mm.
0: how did he get formed what was appealing why did you pick John Bailey or why did you what went into the thinking of creating john bailey
1: uh well in in many ways it was my world or the world that i was connected to so i've always wanted to write books ever since i was a kid i've got like all of you would would i'm sure um have some failed attempts sitting in a drawer a book and a half or more um but it never stopped me trying and and i guess it, for me it was learning about the type of writer that i could be and i felt after um you know, I was working a really busy, you know, job in Sydney. I'd been living in Melbourne for eight years with my wife and kids and we moved back to Sydney um, and I I felt like I wanted to have another go at writing this book. And I thought, well, I need to write the character that I can feel, that I know, and that's where Bailey came from. In fact, I was working, I was never taking lunch breaks and working really long days and things, and as many, you know, people do, I'm not saying there, but... but, um, One day I just thought I'm going to go and have some lunch somewhere around the corner from work and I went and I took my iPad and I wrote the first page of The Greater Good and it's literally almost word for word still that page um, because and that was all about the character of John Bailey and it was about him walking onto in, into the scene of a um, the aftermath of a murder but also you know, walking headfirst into his former life in that his um, ex-girlfriend was the detective um, that was investigating and that was on the scene of that murder that he went to cover as a reporter. Hadn't seen her in years. But so for me, that character was about a few things. It was about Bailey, um, in many ways, trying to pick himself up off the floor after having these years of being a war correspondent and all that trauma. And I saw that in a lot of um reporters and correspondents that I worked with, um, that obsessive nature that um, you're there to cover a story, to seek the truth. Nothing else matters. And I'd seen that, I'd seen how to damage some lives. I've seen how, you know, alcoholism, you know, creeps into the, the profession um, a lot. And so I'd seen that sort of that post-traumatic stress that I've I've seen, you know, obviously not name people, but from working in London and, and in Australia too, the damage that it can cause. And I thought, well, that's, that's my character that would enable me to not only look at world events, set real world thrillers in Sydney. And Sydney was important to be a character for me too, because we are very much a global city now and really, really connected to, some of the conflicts that are happening in the world and the tensions right now. If you look at Australia caught in the middle of the US, China power struggle, which was really that overarching theme for the first book. So Bailey enabled me to do that because I'm not just interested in writing thrillers and page turners. That's absolutely what I want to do. I want people to really enjoy reading these books, but I wanted him to be really human. I wanted to be able to feel and know him. So in many ways, that was a safe space to me to be in. Um, but also the books that I felt I could write and write well because I, the thing about being a writer and I, I, I don't know how many different types of books that I will write or could write in the future. I feel like right now, this is the type of writer that I am. Um, and it was just coming to terms and understanding that that was, that was my strong suit writing this thriller, real world stuff, action, um, hopefully entertaining for, for readers was who I, who, who I was as a writer um and doing that with Bailey just felt natural to me and and um but I've made him human as well and you touched on that earlier that his backstory enables me to do that and I dive into backstory a lot in all of my books because it's a really neat way to just grab something from their life that tells you something about them that you don't know or answer a question about them that might might explain odd behavior or behavioral or, or perspectives so for him walking out on his, not leaving when his wife walked out on on him to come back to Australia when he was in Beirut um, as a young war correspondent, she went with his young child and he chose that life of being a war correspondent over coming back to Australia and trying to mend that relationship and be a father to his daughter. So he carries a lot of, um, he carries a lot of regret about the person he was back then, but that's the Bailey that I've that I start with, mm. um, which is this person who, at the age of his early fifties, in the, the start of The Greater Good, that he's wanting to grow up and be a better man, um, while still being this sort of truth seeker as a as a journalist.
0: That's um, so he has that internal journey, which is really useful for the narrative of the book, but also on a practical level it's really handy that he's a journalist because inherent in being a journalist is a quest is you know being proactive is being the protagonist Your stuff isn't happening to you you're making things happen in a sense or you are see- you're constantly you've constantly got something to do but i just want to give people some context because you are the managing editor of tv news at yep. abc news what does that person do? Just so people understand, really, what does that person do? Um, and what kind of hours are you working? Because the reality is, you you know, you've got two kids, you're a busy person, and yet you fit in writing these bestsellers. So give us that picture.
1: So it probably goes back to the, the jobs that I've done previously as well. So I was a producer for British Sky News on rolling news television in, in the UK, did a bit of freelance in the UK as well. Um, wrote some stories um, in Israel, um, travelled around a bit. Um, and then when I came back to Australia, um, that overseas experience um, led me a good stead for some jobs. And I was pretty young, I was 26, so started working for the ABC and um, was part of the team that set up ABC News Breakfast. And then I was executive producer of that show for um, about four years before I became... Um, TV news editor, which oversaw the seven o'clock news nationally um, before I moved into being managing editor, which now oversees TV news, news channel and all that as well, and still news breakfast and nationally the seven o'clock. So for me, um, I've been a, pro- a producer. So I'll work with um, with reporters, correspondents out in the field on their stories um, and make coverage decisions um, for the broader ABC, you know, with some of my senior colleagues around where we're going, what we're doing, um, and the kind of coverage we should be doing. Um, but then right back in, I guess, in my career, you write down to, you know, ghostwriting a lot of scripts or so you're, you're writing um, uh, you know, longer-form stuff as well. Um, so because I'm in the room where a lot of decisions get to be made and I work with so many amazing people at the ABC um, I've had a window into even more stories um, and of what the stories we might be covering, the people we're talking to. And of course I bring stories as well um, into the ABC from contacts of mine um, at times. Uh, but um, I guess um, I get a bird's eye view into Often some really interesting, fascinating sort of investigations and things that we're doing. So for me, my my job is just like research. You know? <laughs> so mm-hmm. I've got um, really um, fascinating, brilliant people that I work with every day that I get to you know talk to and pick their brains on things. Uh, so yeah, my day job's like research is the way I usually talk about it.
0: Mm, research for your book yeah absolutely so what um, research
1: for crime thrillers exactly yeah
0: yeah, which is which is great now but the thing is news doesn't stop news happens all the time so what kind of hours do you work and when do you actually write your books
1: (laughs) the first book was a bit messy in terms of when I would write it would just be finding a window wherever I could late at night early mornings um but after the first book and I'd signed, I was lucky enough to sign a three book deal with that one that I went, okay, if this is going to be something that I'm going to be able to try to do, I need to figure out like a writing regimen that works. So that's weekends. I just write on weekends. Um, so yesterday morning I got up at 4.30. I wrote till about 10. Um, actually I wrote till about nine and took my daughter to netball. And then I love kids sport. I never miss a, a young son and daughter and, he plays rugby. I coach his team. And um, I'm always there for my daughter's netball as well. And then this morning I got up at 5.30 and I wrote from 5.30 to 9.30. So it's weekends. And, and I, I never really touch a novel during the week because my day job is really busy. So I get into work. I mean, I start consuming news, reading, listening, everything from around 6 in the morning. And I'll be in at work um, between 7.30 and 8. And then I'll leave work any time from five to seven I guess.
0: Yeah because the thing is when you are a news editor you not only are you bombarded with more um, information than the average person you actually have to consume and understand it because you have to then make decisions on what to curate so you just wouldn't have the bandwidth I imagine to then write your novels during the week.
1: Yeah no I wouldn't I wouldn't and and I don't think I'd be able to do a good job at either if i tried to do that um mm. i think you know it, it would be not fair on the my job at the abc and also you know my family and and trying to write <laughs> I'd, I'd just be at the weekends probably spend rewriting things that i wasn't i wasn't happy with but um but no i try to i try to separate it now and i've been doing that for quite a few years now so i'm i'm writing you know the fifth bailey book at the moment um and that's that's just chipping away on weekends but i i'm lucky i, I love. I love it. I really enjoy it. So getting up that early and, and and writing, I really get up at 4.30, mind you, that was a bit of an anomaly yesterday. It's usually on my desk between five and six. Um, and um, yeah, but I, I really enjoy it. It's a nice escape. I feel like the story just sort of sits here in a little corner of my head and I just dive back into it. But, during the week, if an idea pops in my head or something that I think, oh, I need to note that, I'll just—I've got the note section in my iPhone. I'll just punch a few things in and then, and then um, pick it up later. Um, could be so on the bus on my way home or whatever.
0: Let's say you're writing on Saturday and Sunday from five thirty ish to nine thirty ish. About how many words would you get done in a weekend? I'm assuming it's typically two sessions of that nature.
1: Yep, yeah. um, anywhere between anywhere between 1500 and 3000. And because I actually never put a, I never have a goal in a, in a, in a, in a session because by doing that, I find I'm just right. Crap, you know, um, or, or not, or not crap, but um, the words never, I, I never struggle for the words. I struggle with the plot. The plot is the thing that, is, is the most difficult thing. And it should be because if you're going to surprise the reader, it's not going to come to you in a, in a moment, you know, like you need to work hard for that sometimes. So last weekend was a real wrestle for me. I'm in the belly of the book at the moment where I'm in that sort of 35, 40,000 words where you're, you're in there and you go, okay, the decisions I need, I'm need i making now um, are so important for the next 20, 30,000 words and all the way to the end that if I just write I'll write my way into a corner that I can't get out of. So this morning, sorry, yesterday morning. So it was quite torturous. Yesterday morning, I was, I, I rewrote a little bit, just sometimes I will write through the previous chapter or two just to tidy things up, but get my head back in the space of where I need to be. And then I got to the end and I went, oh my god, I don't know where to go yet. I know where I know, I know where I need to be, but if I take Bailey this way. Um, it's going to make things really problematic for me a bit down the track. So I needed to work out what the little building blocks were for me to to take the plot in that direction. Um, And it took me a long time. And something that I did uh, yesterday that I found quite helpful was that I went through and I wrote only a two, three, four line summary of each chapter I'd written all the way to where I was stuck. And it just enabled me to see, because I have three perspectives going in this book, and I usually have two to three dominated by Bailey, but the others are around him. So I don't ever let the plot get ahead of Bailey, really, because it's stage and I don't like doing that. But um, I, yeah, I just, I wrote little summaries all the way through so that I could see, okay, which person, how much of Bailey have I seen? How much of this other police detective in there have I seen? Um, how much of Ronnie Johnson I need to introduce and sprinkle him through um, before he's got a bigger role. So that enabled me to see that as a structural thing. Some people like doing that using a a program or or putting it on a cork board or whichever ways, you know, I could see one of one of the people um, behind us there has got sticky notes all over the wall, um, which is, you know, awesome. And it's whatever works for you. So don't ever grab someone else's way of working and try to make it don't be a square peg fitting into a round hole you've got to work out what works for you it's just hearing lots of different ways to do it and that's that's what what I do and yeah so this weekend um I did all that plotting yesterday and then sat down this morning you know got my coffee and and um Turn the heating on. I write in this little room, which you can see behind me in the backyard. It's really, It gets really cold at the moment, but I've got a heater in here. So pumped up the heating and I just wrote through for three hours. and felt great, you know, and I really know yeah. exactly what I tried, what I needed to do, but it's because of all the pain of yesterday. So, you know, I'm I'm not grumpy going into Sunday night.
0: <laughs> <laughs> can you talk us through the timeline of the gestation period of when you got, when you got the idea for this, when you started writing and how long it took, and then after you submitted, how long before they got back to you with edits, and how then how long the editing process took. If you can just walk us through that,
1: yeah, look, because um, this was my fourth book with Simon Schuster, um, oh, and actually, I've done this with some of the others as well. I would give, or particularly with actually, um, I'm telling you, porky there. So, no, this is the one where I gave. My my editor, Fiona Henderson, uh, who was the publisher then at um, Simon so Schuster, she's now left, but she's wonderful and she's sort of built and believed in me as a writer and I can talk more about her later if you like, but she's uh, really helped me understand the writer I could be. It's important to have a person like that that you really trust. And and I, um, I'd i written about 30, 40,000 words or something. I gave that to her and she said, stop, let's talk about it. We talked about a lot of things. Um, so that i knew where i was going and and that we brainstormed some plotting things together i had someone to bounce off she's just good at asking the kind of questions that you need to ask um, that you really need to tackle because if you shirk those things you might write some beautiful prose but your plot will be all over the place so gave that to her so i, I reckon um i probably spent about six months writing to get to that point and then um and then yeah we had a Good chat. Had to work some things out, um, fix the plot a bit, and then I just powered through and wrote the next forty thousand words in six months, I guess. So yep. I can write wow. I can on write
0: weekends. A, yeah, on
1: weekends, <laughs> I can write a I can write a book. I can write a book a year if I've really worked the plot through. But um, we didn't want to rush this one coming out, particularly with the war in Ukraine starting last year. Um, so we. I really took my time getting a lot of things right, and and um, so yeah, I mean there was a draft of this ready over a year ago, um, and then um, so but then I really went back in and and did a bit more, a lot more work around it. Um, was
0: there a, was there a long editing process?
1: No, not really. Um, this right. one, this one, I have had really brutal editing processes. This one once because. I'm much better now at stopping and plotting before I get going again. Um, I used to make the mistake of I'll just keep writing and and, and work it through because I love the characters the characters will, will, will take it through and um it's it's not enough in in the thriller genre. Um, you can have really super interesting characters, but it's plot that gets you home. Mm. So I mean I I had I did an entire draft of the enemy within my third book that just wasn't working. And, and Fiona and I sat there and sort of spoke about it. And she said to me, look, um, you can fix this book. There's great plot lines, great story there, but um, you know, or you could just stop and start again. Like, what do you, what do you want to do? And then I thought about it for a while. I just grabbed this whole plot line from it and, Married it with AFP raids because I just lived through that. It was an extraordinary abuse of power. And I thought, what if that power got into the wrong hands? Um, that third book, um, to give you the quick um, understanding of it, it, was about white supremacists, far-right nationalism, coupled with a second plot line, which I tend to always try to do, which was around... Um, the Australian Federal Police raids and the ABC had been raided by the Australian Federal Police. And there was ex- this extraordinary power in that warrant that enabled police to add, copy, delete or alter the ABC's files in the course of their investigation. And that just, you know, put shivers down my spine and every journalist in the country. And I, and that's where I really thought, OK, no, that's, um, that's the thing that's going to work this book around for me. So then I, I did that and I did go back to the very beginning, though, because I moved it, um, the setting of it, and put it in Sydney. And I wrote that book in seven months, writing on weekends.
0: Wow, that's wow. Because
1: that's because I'd done so much work on the research part and the plot of the white supremacist stuff, through in um, AFP raids, put it in Bailey's World in Sydney and just rip, rip through it. So that that preparation is really, really important. And I, I learned a tough lesson with that one because I, I junked half a book really. But, you know, a lot of, I think that, you know, a lot of novelists do that. Um, all novelists really do that, to be honest. Don't be afraid to delete is the, the best form of editing sometimes. And mm. and I feel that for me, because my, my books are so rooted in fact, um, all of that real world preparation and then the plotting, it's almost like water gathering at a damn wall. And then when I start writing, it just goes, you know? Um,
0: <laughs>
1: so that's that that that's a nice feeling. It's never always the feeling. Um, because this this time around, I've been plotting a bit more as I go, but I've done a, a mountain of research.
0: I know you just said yeah. that all of your books are really rooted in fact, and they so are. And I'm sitting there googling as I'm reading, going, <laughs> Is this real? Is this real? But in addition to world events and things that are happening um, to us as a society and us as a government and all of that, there's also real places that you're using in Sydney. So it's set in Sydney or in Canberra. It's set in Australia, and you because I interview a lot of authors who, even though their their story is set in Australia or even in whatever capital city. the the suburb is fictitious or the hotel is fictitious or whatever, but you've used real places, the Oxford Tavern, Mm. Um, uh, for those of you in Sydney will know that iconic salubrious joint, Um, the Harbour Rocks Hotel, you know, the various hospitals, streets and buildings and stuff like that. Um, How important is that to you? And do you need to check, you know, is that okay that someone got killed here or, or something like that or got poisoned here?
1: Yeah. Um, look, you know, you can't defame a hotel. Um yeah. so but for me, um, I, I just I, I want it to be real. So if everything has happened, will happen, or could happen, it's it's real places. I want Sydney to be a character for for, for readers. Um, you know, I write about Harry's Cafe to Wheels in the in the first book. Um, I tell the story about that, how that came about. Um, they're part of Sydney. I mean, this is Sydney is actually quite an iconic city, um, not just because of its beautiful harbour and beaches. I mean, I call it a bullshitters paradise as well in the book, and that's what it is in a way to me because it's this it's this incredibly beautiful, amazing city. It's got a bit of a gritty underbelly, it's got a lot of bullshitters. Um it's a bit of an LA on, on this side of the world sometimes, but it's fa- it's an interesting character for me. And I want to I want to tell the story of the place Watson all so um so using real um real pubs or real hotels um is is something that I, I enjoy doing and it's important to me. However, I do make up some stuff in terms of I, I do have some fictitious pubs or a fictitious street um where something happens because yeah i don't want to get too close to the bone on if 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 um if i've said something as horrific as had something that's happened there or particularly in this third book when it was around racism and stuff i didn't want to pin that on a location where people would go oh that's 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 a bit not the kind of place i'd like to go to <laughs> so so yeah you've I, I need to use artistic license a bit um with some, with some places, but yeah, keeping it as real as possible is important.
0: So you mentioned before that it's, it needs to be plot driven, but your characters are also pretty interesting and multifaceted. But the thing is when you're writing a book set in this world spy kind of world, there's a lot of tough guys, right? There's, there's an alpha male and there's another alpha male and there's another alpha male. Um, But, and yet, they're very distinctive. What did you need to consciously do to make sure that readers could immediately, you know, differentiate them without having to try too hard?
1: Oh, I think motivation, what motivates people. So for, for Ronnie Johnson, it's the idea that America's, you know, this incredibly flawed, but amazing experiment of democracy that needs to be defended um, at all costs, no matter what. And that's where the whole idea of the greater good comes from. That's why I use that as a title. Um, and for Bailey, it's it's chasing the truth um, and doing it the right way. He doesn't like crossing lines. So that's a distinction for those two. But the female characters in my books are always super important for me um, in that um, I want them to play, like, big roles. So Annie Brooks is is this very flawed but brilliant, um a television journalist that Bailey has a long history with, who is really good at, you know, digging and getting people to talk as well. Um, and of course, Sharon Dexter, who um, is in my first two novels, uh, who's just this in- incredible. I mean, I think I fell in love with her writing her because she's just this the strongest um, you know, police detective who's just made it in this man's world where there was dirty cops around and people um, you know, trying to undermine her, not just for being someone who, like Bailey, is tracing the, the, the truth and justice, but because she was a woman as well. So, um, yeah, big characters are really important for me. And, yes, I think I want them to complement each other. I don't want what I never wanted to do with any characters uh, in, in, in the story outside of Bailey. I didn't want them to be window dressing for Bailey's character each of them have their own starring role in these books. And it's why I choose different perspectives to have different perspectives in there, because they're not there to, you know, be supporting roles for Bailey. Um, They're there to help him explain the world. And and that's, you know, that was important for me.
0: So you do have strong female characters um, in this novel and it is um do you do you do anything to get any feedback or insight into that because there was like one scene I remember thinking how did he know that how did, no guy I know would write that <laughs> so, do you have readers or anything like that To yeah
1: yeah yeah I do um and look on on the I, my, my my sister-in-law um is a she's a journalist and and I hope she writes a book one day I think she's got it in her um but she she has given me some good feedback, you know, on on female characters. Um, it's great having a female editor, to be honest. And and my my editor, um, both my editors with Simon Schuster, Fiona Henderson and Michelle Swainson, um, have have always um, given me really you know helpful think um, suggestions and, and edits, um, but also um, pulled me up when I've you know, <laughs> said something that no woman would think or do. Uh, so. Um, I, I'm I'm always um always looking for um my wife as well. You know she's mm. she's giving me some good advice on things. Yeah, like I, I'm just a good listener. You know, to be honest, I mean I I know when not to listen though as well. Um, when you really just need to hold firm on what your idea of the plot is, um, or, or what the story I'm trying to write, that's got to be you. So that's got to be from you. So. If you you can't fold on some things because otherwise, you know, do something else. But on some of the, the things that you you know you raised around whether i got something right, you know, representing a female perspective, or you know, there's this there's this moment in the enemy within where Annie Brooks has has just covered um been doing life crosses on a television show for covering a, a murder, and she's walking to a car. And she thinks she's being followed, and she grabs the keys out of a pocket and, and holds them in a fist. So you got the key that's effectively a weapon between your knuckles. And um I know that that women particularly have done that. Um, that women have a um a, a, I guess, um, have, have felt danger in a way that I haven't as a bloke. Um and and a lot of women actually have, have raised that that scene for me um, and said, Oh my God, I've done that so many times. And when you sent shivers down my spine and that was a pretty small scene in the book really, but it was something that I just, you know, got right, which, which I was happy about.
0: I remember that. Um, Before we wrap up, uh, can you, what can you tell us because this is very, very exciting that your books are currently being developed for TV and I just can't wait to see the the TV version. What can you tell us about that? I know that it's you can't necessarily reveal everything, but what what's happened with that?
1: Um well it's it's, it's being developed at the moment and, and the production company CJZ is just amazing. Like when when you when you have that sort of you you meet someone that just gets what you have tried to do with your books and said how about we give it a life on the screen. Um, I just feel so confident with it in their hands but I, I'm involved as well so there's a, a great writer that's been signed on to be the lead screenwriter um, and other some other writers too and there's a writers room happening pretty soon um, and I'll be I'll be involved in that and, and and I can't wait so look there's a lot of interest from um, streamers and networks so let's let's see how we go it's these things take can take a while but um, but the, the, it's looking really great so far.
0: Very exciting. And let's end with what are your top three writing tips for people who want, you know, their fourth novel to be out there one day?
1: Um, Don't be afraid to delete. Um, don't be afraid to, as I've spoken a lot about this, but don't um, already around plotting, don't be afraid to just hit stop if you feel like you don't know where you're going. Stop. Spend time plotting um, and, and thinking Um, and thirdly, write in a way, like discover the writer that you are, um, that whether you're a literary writer or you're a thriller action writer, or, you know, find your voice as a writer. Um, and when you found that voice back yourself, I mean, that that's, yeah, they're my three things.
0: I love it. And on that note, thank you so much for your time today, Tim.
1: It's been great, Valerie. Thanks so much.
0: I loved chatting to Tim and his latest book, Killer Trader Spy, is such a cracker. Recently, Tim also spent time with our Write Your Novel students and our Edit Your Novel students in a great session where they could ask him questions about his writing process and so on. And we did it on Zoom so that students from all over the country could to participate. This is actually part of the Write Your Novel program where we invite students to industry events and where they get to meet authors like Tim and editors and publishers and so on. The Write Your Novel program is what you work towards because most students first do creative writing stage one, which is five weeks, and that's kind of like an introduction and to see if you like it, if you like writing, if you like writing fiction. And if you do, and you think, oh, I might want to start a novel, then the next step in the process is Novel Writing Essentials, which is ten weeks. And by the end of Novel Writing Essentials, if you stick to the program, you'll have the start of your novel. You'll have twenty thousand words, and that will help you get your twenty your, your twenty thousand words written because that's what you need in order to get into the Write Your Novel program, and that helps you basically finish your entire novel. So you and um, your cohort, your classmates, are there every step of the way, supporting each other, and that is over a six month or twelve month period, depending on you know what suits your lifestyle and and what's what it, what else is going on in in your life. All right, so again. Fantastic. I'm so thrilled we were able to get Tim on the show. Now, before I leave you, fun fact for you. Do you know your serif from your sans serif? Uh Aha! If you've been listening for a while, you probably know that I love typography. And in the typography world, fonts usually get divided into two broad categories, serif and sans serif. Serif fonts are ones like Times New Roman. So if you can picture the capital letter T, which in its simplest form is just one vertical line with a horizontal line on top, well, with a serif font, the horizontal line will have the little extra bits at the ends, kind of like the curly bits and stuff. And the vertical line will have that little stand at the bottom, that little pedestal thing at the bottom. Those extra little lines or decorations are called serifs. And fonts without serifs like Helvetica and Arial and so on are sans serifs or sans serifs, depending if you want to say it the the French way, which literally means without serifs. Generally in print publishing, like books and newspapers and magazines, we use serif fonts because they're considered easier to read, easier for the eye to follow along those little lines. However, on websites and apps, fonts tend to be sans serif because they are cleaner and allow for more white space. There you go. So I know uh, that some of you already knew the difference, but in case you didn't know the difference between serif and sans serif fonts, that's what they are. Okay, now we've come to the end of this week's episode. Thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate you. Having me in your ears and learning from the authors that I have on the show, Uh, feel free to join the Facebook group. We have a fantastic listener community on Facebook. I'd love to see you in there. It is um, on Facebook. Just go to Facebook and search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. Love to have you in there. And of course, you can feel free to connect with me on social media personally. I'm on Twitter at Valerie Koo, as well as Instagram at Valerie Koo. And uh, if you want to have a into my other life, uh, that's over at ValerieKoo.com. Thanks for listening, everyone, and I look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentercomau slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writercentercomau slash news, where you'll find writing resources giveaways, competitions and much more.